Hey everybody, it's the Blizzard Watch Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rossi. With me this week is my fantastic co-host, Joe Perez. Um, Joe, we talked about it a little bit on the pre-show, but what the heck. What are you up to right now? Uh, just getting ready to start a brand new season for the Blood Bowl League that I'm running. Doing a lot of minis, painting a lot of minis, printing a lot of minis, uh, and just organizing and herding cats. And uh, it is my birthday week, so I'm getting ready to spend some time with friends and family and uh, enjoy the fact that I'm getting old. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> getting old. I said getting, I didn't say that I was. Suck to be as old as you, Joe. Yeah, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Anyway, uh, <laughs> been a lot of stuff going on in the Blizzard world this week, so we'll move right on into those top stories, and I'm going to do this without going into a southern accent for once, because I have no reason to do so, and I'm sorry I ever do it. Um, first up, this is one I'm going to mention because it's kind of near and dear to my heart. We finally know something about Diablo Immortal. It's not a release date, because yeah. of course it's not a release date. Why would Blizzard give us a release date? But we do know that and I'm putting quotes, air quotes here really hard, regional testing is going to roll out this summer. Makes sense. Uh, I don't know what they mean by regional testing. I don't know if they mean we're going to test this in China. I don't know if they mean we're going to test this in specific regions. I, I have no idea. I just know that that's what they said. That, that's what regional testing is. So regional testing is something where you take um, a specific set of software, and it's like a stress test, but you do it in particular with like mobile um, with certain regional networks. So, like, they'll do sections here in the States. They'll probably do sections in Europe. They'll probably do sections in China for sure uh, to try to see how the systems can handle that network traffic because at the end of the day, it is a connected game, and you have to test to see how those individual service areas affect that type of gameplay. So they want to see how that interacts. So you'll see it here, but you'll see it, like... It might be specific to a single carrier, like Verizon or something like that might be the one here that gets it. It might be, you know, Hanwai in, in China. And then they'll get they'll start gathering data that way. So when they say regional, that's what they mean. So that's all we know right now. They don't they haven't said, you know, exactly when they're going to do it, and they haven't said what it means for when this game will actually come out. But we at least know now that that this was an earnings call, by the way. Uh they, they were doing the, the most recent earnings call when they made this this announcement. So, yeah, that's something. Diablo Immortal is actually going to come out at some point. Uh, I, I've been wanting them to get, bring this thing out for a while because, like I've said before, it's a, it's a Diablo MMO on phones and iPads and stuff. So, yeah, that's pretty insane. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I don't know that I'll play it because I don't play a lot of phone games because I can't see very well. Um, but I am interested in seeing what it brings out in terms of lore for for the setting and what it, what effect it has, if any, on the development of Diablo 4. Which we should move on to the next story we got. Um, Rod Ferguson, who was a big deal over at the Coalition, the guys who did Gears of War, and specifically yeah. very important in Gears 5, has moved over to Blizzard to basically run Diablo. He is now in charge of the Diablo IP. That's that's his job. He is the, he's the Diablo guy. Um, that's amazing to me. Uh, basically, uh, I didn't. I don't play Gears of War. It's not. A, it's it's not my game. There were other games I liked at the time Gears came out. I never got into it. But Gears Five, a lot of people talked about how it basically the campaign was amazing, mm -hmm. um, and specifically that it was very much 
an open world almost RPG like experience. Very similar to how um, other games have have come out and done that kind of experience lately. I think the two big ones from Sony were were uh, Horizon Zero Dawn and God of War. I would say that Titanfall Two very much did that kind of story. Yes. Although it was it was more of a I think Titanfall Two is more similar to Gears of Five here than those previous games I mentioned. Titanfall Two is another game with a really good campaign, but still very much based in being a shooter. Uh, it kept the essence of the the game that came out before it while expanding it with a more robust story. And I I have to feel like that's why they're hiring Ferguson. I think so too. Yeah, he's proved that he can do this. He can take. A game that is basically, hi, I have an extremely large neck and a gun with a chainsaw on it, and he can get a story out of it. Well, and... I think I think it, it's a little bit beyond that, though, too. He has a very good idea of preservation when it comes to these things, too, because that, that, that's something that I think people... I've seen people talk about this, and they seem to miss this. When he takes over, when he's taken over any project he's worked on, he preserves or tries to preserve as much as possible the things people like about that setting, that game, that world. And it's not just go in and blow things up and pick a new direction. It's go in, what can we do to keep it move fresh, but keep that feel, keep it feeling the same. And that's why I think this is really, really good, because... We saw some weird stuff with Diablo 3 where they tried to do new things and didn't really have a pulse on uh, a finger on the pulse of what was players wanted, or at least it seemed at the beginning. Now you have somebody walk, walking in who understands how to look at a player base. This is what they like. This is what is good about this game. Here's what people love about, like in this case, Diablo. And here's how we can make it more. Here's how we can take this and go different places with it but still keep everybody along for the journey and i think that's kind of important yeah no i totally agree um so yeah i think that's why we're we're seeing this move i do think this move means that we are much further away from diablo 4 than we might think i agree uh, you, you do not bring somebody in like this when the game is done or even half done this is uh okay we've got our conceptual blocks hammered down we have the gameplay hammered down how do we make this the game we want it to be? And that's when you bring in that guy. Uh, and I mean, I, I did, I played the demo for Diablo four and I know th the gameplay is there. Uh, the three classes they had, the gameplay is absolutely there already. So yeah. Um, I, I see this as a positive move overall. And I think Joe, I think you're pretty much on board with that too, right? I agree. I actually think this has got me a lot more excited. I was already excited for Diablo four, but this has got me more excited to see what they produce from it because with somebody like this at the helm i think it's going to be it's going to have some pretty cool stuff coming for us i think yeah and also the fact that ferguson's got so much experience with both microsoft and uh networks in general means that when blizzard inevitably puts this game on consoles he'll he has an understanding of the net of the how that works because mm -hmm. gears is gears 5 was a huge console title oh yeah um, big so, massive big, and he has an understanding of how Microsoft's networks work, how those consoles work. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next thing we're going to talk about really fast, because um, there's not a lot to talk about, uh, but the Shadowlands prequel novel has had a little teaser released, a couple of pages preview. <clears throat> what did you think of it, Joe? I am intrigued. I didn't. I try not to go too far into it just because I want to – I, I'm we. I want to read the whole thing. Excerpts are great, but they just get me salivating for more. Uh, it's some interesting direction 
and some of the we kind of knew one of the things was going to be a, a a topic and I don't I don't want to ruin anything for anybody and I'm I'm kind of I want to skirt around it but we talked about it on Lore Watch about one of one of Sylvanas's possible goals uh and the novel and the excerpt confirms one of those goals <laughs> like yeah this is uh this is going to be an interesting Shadowlands and if this is going to set it up anything like before the storm uh set up BFA I I cannot wait to read the entirety of this novel I was just interested to see that they've they've hit on something that I've been thinking about but didn't know how to put into words, which was that the Zandalari don't have anything to be particularly happy about here. Mm-hmm. Like the end of the war, the Zandalari are the only ones who took a hit from the Alliance. Yeah, They're it was the their capital that city sh- that got hit. Yeah, it was their king who died. Um, it's not surprising that the whole, okay, we have peace now. That's not the end of the like, yo, we joined you to get revenge. You didn't provide even a smidgen of revenge. Like you, not even a. You brought the alliance to your capital's gates and fought with them. That's not. That's not revenge. I don't know if you. I thought you guys were down on revenge. I th- thought you had a pretty good grasp of revenge. Somebody kills your dad, you don't immediately work with them. That's that's a problem for me. So I thought that was interesting that they they actually successfully jumped on that, and that's part of the story going forward. That was something I was interested to see. But yeah, without spoiling, there's lots of other stuff in this. This the stuff that we've seen in the preview and the stuff we've seen in the um, teaser stuff definitely looks interesting, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. I don't I've not actually read anything by Madeline Rue before, but she, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested. I believe she did the uh, the Traveler series of books, right? Yes, I believe you are correct. Yeah i I'm excited to see her take on this. I'm excited to see how she crafts this part of the story. In this, like everybody loves Christy Golden for very good reasons, uh, but I'm interested to see somebody else take these characters that we know Christy has poured so much love and attention into, and see what they do with it. Especially with somebody like Madeline who takes care and attention and is just a really cool person. So some of the better novels. I mean, this is nothing against Christy, but we all know I love Christy. Uh, War Games is one of my favorite books, but. The Illidan book that came out before Legion was really well done. Yes. And it wasn't – Christy didn't write that. Uh, I want to say Tom King, but I don't remember if that's his name or not. Um, but, yeah, the, the Illidan book was really good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, William, I'm excited. William King. William King. See, I, Tom King is the guy who's been writing Batman, and I have thoughts about that. <laughs> but we'll talk about that at some other podcast. Um, but, yeah. Um, okay, so next thing we're going to talk about really fast is that for the first time in eight years – Somebody other than Method killed a world, did a Mythic boss world first. Yeah, congrats to Limit. I don't know if it was, I think someone other than Method may have done it before, but usually it was another European guild. Um, this is the first time in eight years that a North American guild has actually managed to, to kill a world first boss. Since I, uh, yeah. Empress, right? Yeah, it's been, it's been eight years. So, yeah. Um, and. You know, congrats to Limit. It's an amazing thing to have done. The fight was... It wasn't like a Kill Jaden fight where they had literally thousands of pulls on it. Uh, they, they did get it done in a few hundred. A few hundred pulls is still a lot of pulls, guys. Don't don't go making it sound like this was easy. And Limit had to ride the like the, the like razor's edge of hotfixes and adjustments while they were trying to do this fight. Um, I was very impressed that they got it done. And, and it's weird because this wasn't one of my real big mythic watching 
races, I wasn't as invested as I was in Legion. Like, but when they finally started getting like down to like 2.5%, 2.3%, I started watching because yeah, I'm going to watch that. Uh, what did you think about all of it? What did you think about all of the stuff that's been going on around this whole thing? I'm not happy with some of the saltiness I've been seeing regarding all of this. Uh, not just be between like certain people from method, not exactly being the nicest, not just to other folks uh, in limit, but also like people that run websites like Warcraft logs and stuff like that. Like I understand that they didn't get their, their world first, but it's the first time in eight years. Like y'all, y'all can chill a little bit. Like it's a game. You, you, you didn't get first place. Okay, cool. Other than that, like the other stuff I'm cool with, like the weird comps that they were, that everybody ran, uh, the weird or different ways that they were dealing with the bugs and the mechanics was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and it actually, this is one of the first times that I, I watched a, uh, race as well. Like I didn't watch, I haven't watched any of the world first races uh, up until now. And it gave us, or gave, I don't want to say me, but like my guild ideas on how to handle certain things in normal and heroic that we probably wouldn't have considered because we're just not at that, that level. So isn't was, that was like messed up, like I, Coming up from, you know, when we started playing, nobody did this. Yeah. It was like anathema, the idea that you'd let other guilds see your strats. Like, no. Oh, yeah. We nobody to, did that. Back on Zul'jin in, in Classic WoW, because I was in a, a server-first guild, uh, because that's what it was at the time, not world-first, uh, like, we would, like, change our gear so that Armory wouldn't show what we had. We would, you know, keep our forms locked down. We would IP restrict things so people couldn't see strategies. We would make sure our audio, like our, our voice chat was like locked all the way down so nobody that wasn't in the guild or didn't have the password could join in. And like it was yeah. it was crazy and, how guarded we were. And now we live in a world where pe where like guilds pushing world first will literally let you watch absolutely everything they mm -hmm. do. Mm-hmm. That's just that is a mind blowing to me. That's it's in a way it's ridiculously cool, but it's also totally like antithetical to how I think about rating. So yeah, I've had to like make myself think differently if it makes any sense. I've had to like get with what's going on, so to speak, if I don't yeah. want to sound too old. Uh, but yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, that that happened. Congrats to Limit. Um, I think quite frankly, method being second in the world is not a bad thing. Uh, you've been first so many times, it'll give you a chance to take a nap. Uh, and then you'll come back and you'll dominate the next 12 raids. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> good for everybody. Last up for top stories, this one's a little different because <clears throat> I wrote an article just kind of on the fly talking about corruption for undergeared characters like your alts. And the reason I did that was because it's different when you're going into the expansion on your main and your main has already been raiding for a while. They've already done a bunch of of you know eternal palace stuff they've got gear from from mythic dungeons and so forth you're already pushing like 420 430 before you even step into the new the new patch but now you're getting on your alt who's like in 350 360 gear you haven't been playing them in a while maybe you just came back to wow maybe you just haven't played this character in a while and one of the things that can end up happening is because your, the world quest gear is capable of being corrupted. And because you're getting gear 
from the you know the 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 old god assaults that that can range between 420 to 440 uh you can end up getting your gear going way up an item level really fast oh yeah but it can be corrupted gear and there's a thing where you don't really think about it too much because it's just dropping so quickly and it's all like I, i'm gonna use my paladin as an example because my paladin came in with like 380 gear on and then i was like okay now i'm going to have you know 420 430 gear dropping and i put a bunch of it on and it didn't even occur to me that my corruption was like 120 and i hadn't even finished the the opening quest yet i didn't have my cloak yet I didn't have any of the essences that reduce corruption. So I had 200 corruption and absolutely nothing to reduce it. So I went out and started doing the next assault. And I got, like, I literally got two pulls in and suddenly everything went off at once and I died horribly like a chicken. Yep. And that kept happening because it, it hadn't occurred to me just how high 200 corruption was. Uh, my main had 50 corruption and was dealing with it just fine, but my main didn't bother using much corrupted gear. There wasn't a reason to. The weapon upgrade was the only thing that was an absolute keeper. So I wrote a thing for the site about it. You can go, go to Blizzard Watch. It's still on the site. But basically, the thing I learned is that if you are on a character who is like undergeared, who is like maybe your item levels like at 420, 425 after you get the cloak, Get your corruption down to below 30. You want, at the most, you want one or two corrupted things to be happening. I think at that item level, the most you want is maybe the, the eyeball spawning over your head and the, the, the thing from beyond chasing after you. And you don't want them at high levels. You 30, is, 30 to 35, I would say, is the highest you want it to do. And in fact, if you have enough corruption resistance to knock it down below 30... You should absolutely use it. Um, get the essence that has corruption resist on it, so that you're getting ten corruption resistance from your necklace. Get your cloak and and do horrific visions to get your cloak boosted. Because if you can get it below twenty, a below twenty corruption, you don't have any problems at all. Mm -hmm. Nothing is happening. And you may be thinking, "Wow, that's that's really low. I'm not going to have any real corrupted gear." That's okay for your alt. If they're just if their gear item level is not high enough. They're not going to survive a lot of corruption stuff happening. It's going to end up killing you. And this is conservative. I, I freely admit it. And I'm going to turn it over to Joe now and see what he thinks, what his strategies are for dealing with corruption. I don't know what he, how his alt situation is. But, Joe, what do you think? I have none of my alts uh, because they can't deal with it. So literally anything I get, if I have enough mementos, I just go and purge it. And that's the end of the story for my alts. Like, they're, they're never going to be at a place where I feel confident that they can handle anything above maybe possibly being slowed randomly on my main even i won't use a lot of it but also because i heal in a lot of the corruption effects that like from the gear that's from questing or anything like that aren't good for healers almost all of it is dps specific so i don't use it like it i want to uh, I, I want to have cool effects and stuff like that because I like the concept of it. But, like, I get... Okay, I get more mastery. Well, 150% mastery really doesn't do me any good. I mean, not really. Uh, oh, I can have some extra crit. Well, it's an extra 3%. Okay, it's good. It's not great. You know, it's not like Echoing Void, which has to be nerfed or, or adjusted because it's not doing exactly what they want. But, like, it's a cool effect when it visually triggers. 
the other the other problem I had is until last night, I couldn't stare at corruption at all. So for whatever reason, there's a light effect that's used in the purples and the reds for very high corruption because you can see other players corruption that was giving me instant migraines. And there are spell effects towards the end of Nihilatha that have the exact same color light pattern as that corruption effect and was doing the same thing. Uh, so I personally wasn't running a lot of corruption because I couldn't deal with it. There's no way to turn it off. There's no way to turn the visual off. So I just wouldn't equip corruption gear. Uh, but last night I figured for anybody out there that's having a similar problem to me, because I know I, I tweeted this out and I got a bunch of responses. Colorblind mode, the first one down, I can't remember the name of it. It's like proto protopania or something like that fixed it for me it takes the the color down just enough and mutes the light just enough no more headaches so now i can actually start looking at corruption gear again maybe with a little more a, a little less hesitation than i had before because now i can actually play the game without having a splitting headache so i'm cool but that's where i'm at with that all right uh so yeah, there's ways to deal with it. Don't don't feel like you're being overwhelmed by it if you've been away from the game for a while or if you're trying to juggle in on alts who don't have the same, you know, options as your main. There definitely are ways to deal with it. But at this point, I think we should probably move on to doing some emails. I uh, agree. If you're prepared to read some, Joe. And let us All go right. forth. Uh, well, let me go yep. ahead and do that thing where I tell people where to send us emails. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just me talking. That's weird. Uh, if you have an email for the show, please send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com with the subject line podcast or blizzardwatch so we know it's for this show and not for lower watch because, you know, lower watch, we have a separate mailbag for them. Um, if you don't mind, Joe, go ahead. Take it away. Greetings, watchers. I happened to rewatch the intro cinematic for Cataclysm the other day, and I became confused on the path of Deathwing. It shows him flying out of some mountain area to flying across the harbor of Aberdeen and then finally landing on the gates of Stormwind. Is the cinematic correct? Does Deathwing burst out of some mountains, then do a globetrot destroying different places, then finally landing on Stormwind Gates? How did the emergence of Deathwing manage to do so much damage to the world, while other events, such as the Legion's Invasion or Nazoth's Invasion, only affect small areas? Thank you for helping me understand this. Uh, Osordug, Orc Warrior from Dalaran. Um, well, up front, he bursts out of the, the, the Maelstrom. Like the you know if you have the shaman class order hall in Legion, that place is where he comes out of the the rocks you mm -hmm. see are him actually coming out of that area, and the reason it does so much damage is because he's traveling from another plane of existence to this one. He actually punches a hole in the matrices between the elemental plane of Earth essentially and Azeroth. The deep home is where he comes out of. And in so doing, he damages the Titanic equipment that stabilized those dimensions. And thus, they were crashing into Azeroth. Like, if you go to Uldum, the Vortex Pinnacle, and uh, Throne, of the, Throne of the Four Winds, those aren't supposed to be there. Those are only there because Deathwings going through Deepholm destroyed the pillar that was holding Deepholm up. Yep. And holding it up in a metaphysical sense. It was keeping it separate from Azeroth. With that damage to the separation between the four elemental planes and Azeroth was also damaged. And so you were seeing the effects of the elements going bonkers. Uh, and we saw that 
in the elemental uprest before cataclysm came out the elementals knew something was going to happen they could feel it they understood that, that that bad things were coming and it had them you know for one thing both uh um ragnaros and uh i'm forgetting who the other one i think it was actually alakir were working Alakir. with uh, they were working with deathwing so the elementals knew because the top elementals were straight up signed on board and so they they started freaking out uh in terms of his flight path, it does seem weird to me, it always has, that he flew out of the Maelstrom, took a ride all the way over to Kalimdor, wiped out Aberdeen, and then flew back towards the Eastern Kingdoms to take out um, the dam before hitting Stormwind. But it's not that surprising that he might have been wheeling around when he comes out of Deepholm. Keep in mind, the amount of power it took to punch a hole between Deepholm and Azeroth is pretty extreme. It's not surprising that it took him a while to get control of his flight. And it's even more horrific when you realize he may have destroyed Aberdeen kind of accidentally. Like, he wasn't really trying to destroy Aberdeen. It just happened. It was just in his way, and he didn't care. Whereas he deliberately went for Stormwind because he wanted to get his kids' bodies back. Uh, their heads were currently hanging from the city gates, and he didn't like that. He wanted to get them back. That's exactly how we get Anixia and Nefarian back in this expansion is because Deathwing was going to Stormwind to get their corpses. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess canonically that's where they ended up. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, I think that's pretty much it. Like that's what happened. I mean, do you think of anything? The only other thing I can think of is like, it, it was called the madness of Deathwing for a reason. It's also entirely possible that he broke out and, you know, took a while to get control of himself. Maybe not necessarily his flight. Uh, he could have been uh, sort of in a, frenzied state and not really thinking about where he was going and just kind of flying around. He was a gigantic dragon, big enough that we were fighting on his back at one point. Like, Yeah, if you remember the little speech he gives during the cinematic, he's he's not doing well mentally. No, he is not. Like, he, yeah, he, he's hurting. And you even see them if you watch the cinematic. By the way, the cinematic is amazing. Uh, they're, they're nailing giant Elementium plates to his back. And, you know, they're driving them in with enormous spikes that they have to use enormous hammers on swing sets to smash into him. They're like using battering rams to hammer this armor into his body. He probably wasn't feeling too great. He's probably pretty upset. That's yeah. what I'm going with. Yeah, and that would be my guess is more he just wasn't in complete control of his mental faculties quite yet. And even then he never really got full control, but... He wasn't quite 100% Deathwing, and that's probably why he was all over the place. Until he got control of himself, Was like, okay, well... I can feel where my kids' bodies are. I'm going to go get them back. All right, Stormwind, I'm on my way. Let's go, you know, deal with that. So that yeah. that's that's my guess. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next up, hi, guys. A few episodes ago, you spoke about having different flavor for gear and WoW. What do you think of bringing D3-style legendary traits that change up the way abilities passives work to completely change the way a specific spec plays? It could be done in any number of ways, like tier bonuses, individual legendaries, etc. Imagine having two to three pieces of gear with certain mods that change a prop warrior to DPS at the cost of threat and defense stats so that you become a viable DPS. Just something I thought of uh, that has the potential of some of that flavor we are all looking for. I hope this blows up into an hour-long conversation that gets people thinking. Keep up the good work. And this is from Durgis, Torn Druid on Silver Moon. You know what would really be interesting about these legendaries? What if when they, you know, there was a bunch of them for different specs and stuff, and you could buy them using items that you, you got doing dungeons and so forth, 
and your reputation as you as you went on. You could buy the ones you didn't already get, and we could call it World of Warcraft Legion because that's what they did with legendaries and legion man remember that that's that's what they were doing they maybe didn't go as far as to let your prot warrior go dps but they did that in warlords of draenor with with gladiator stance that was an actual talent that you could take so they have done those things i don't i don't think the legion i don't think that the diablo model works all that great in world of warcraft and i think it doesn't work that great in world of warcraft because World of Warcraft is kind of afraid to go whole hog with it because of I, all the balance. I mean, yeah, it, I think that's the big thing—the balance, right? In Diablo, if the, if like a barb is just not as good as a as a crusader, it doesn't really matter as much because you probably won't just switch to crusader. You'll probably just stick it out with your barbarian um, for a lot of reasons, including that you know you'd have to gear them up all over again and so forth. And the more time you have invested. In Diablo, the more unlikely you are to switch away from your characters that you play a lot. Um, and there's less abilities. Like Di Diablo, you, you have more options on abilities, but you have at most, what, six buttons you're pushing? Uh, whereas, you know, the, the action bar in World of Warcraft, even after the, the ability pruning, is just crazy long. I've got like yeah. a ton of buttons here looking at my character UI right now. Uh, yeah, just so many. Some of them are doubled up, obviously. I'm not using absolutely all of those buttons, but I have a lot of them. So he, here's what I think about it. I think uh, Legion did do this to a certain degree. It didn't really completely change, like, play styles for the legendaries. Like, it didn't It didn't change how I was a Resto Shaman. It, I was still a Resto Shaman. I just had some Yeah, but it did for some classes. Some classes, some, some of them did. Know, yeah. Like, I think it was Death Knights, for instance. I had Unholy Death Knights completely changed how they worked. The the thing that I will say is, while I like this idea, I think this comes to a fundamental difference between an MMO and an ARPG. Now, an ARPG, while you can play with other players, like you look at games like Torchlight, Diablo, um, Pillars of Eternity, all that stuff. There has they don't have to worry about balance in the same way as World of Warcraft does. Specifically, and then I'll bring up PvP here. How many things have we had balanced, adjusted, or moved around in-game over the course of 15 years because it completely broke player versus player? I can tell you quite a bit because it needed to be maintained. Like, you would see at one point, we talked about this during the pre-show a little bit, you would see entire teams of, like, you know, enhancement shamans with Wind Fury and Hand of Ragnaros that would just blow up groups because it was unbalanced. You would have different healers that could completely outclass other healers in PvP because it was unbalanced, and they spent a the lot kept, of time. Yeah, the only thing that kept warriors viable in PvP for years was Mortal Strike. Yep. It wasn't how much damage they could do, although they could do some damage. They could actually hurt people. But it was that big Mortal Strike because it could it would reduce healing by half. Yep, it was massive. Yeah, and it uh, there wasn't a healer in the game who didn't hate it. And warriors were nerfed so many times because of it, but it kept warriors viable forever. And it because it kept warriors viable forever, the other two specs that didn't have it were never viable. Yep. Fury was never viable now, in PvP for years. Now I know that the the counter argument to that by somebody is like, well, then gives a legendary that gives that you know mortal strike those other two specs. Yes, but then how do you balance the rest of that class spec against that? Right, because when you look at the classes, you look at the specs, you look at the individual, uh, the individual kits that were given. 
they're balanced amongst themselves, not just the rest of the classes and specs. And stuff like this, while it's a really cool idea, and I really like the idea of having something that changes passes or abilities in, in those ways to make classes feel completely different, I, I don't think it would be a good player experience in the end. Not necessarily just because of you. Like, if you don't have any legendaries, but you're going against a mage, and that mage has something completely out of left field that you have no idea how to handle because they have one if, specific yeah, legendary. He's, he's got that legendary that gives him the ability to put ice block on you. Yeah, how do you deal with and that? Now ice block is a CC that you can't get out of. And it's, you know, sure, you're immune to damage. Meanwhile, you're utterly helpless and your entire party is being destroyed. You ice block the healer. Well, that's over. You know, yeah. that there's some some ideas that that's really cool. Oh, wow, that would really suck to have that happen to you. But that's why I'm a real big proponent of, like, visual changes and visual flavor versus mechanical flavor, if that makes sense. So, like, I'd rather see the spell effect change or a character wear something different or thematically be different but have the same effects. Like, you can have a bear totem warrior that works just like a prot warrior but just looks different. Like, that's the type of stuff that I talk about with flavor because that doesn't change the balance. That just changed the user, the individual user experience in a way that's meaningful to that person but doesn't break the game. At least... and Yeah, and part of the problem is, is this game's balancing system is... Archaic. I mean, yeah, the original game is from you know 20, 2004. Uh, and sure, it's been changed a lot since. But at the heart of it, they, we have the three roles, and the three roles still define World of Warcraft in a very fundamental way. You have tank, DPS, and healer. And there's a reason there's almost... Like, they've, not, they've never added a pure DPS class. They've only ever added a tanking class or a, D, a tank heal class, which is, you know, they've only, they've only had added hybrids from the beginning. Every class added has been a hybrid. It's uh, yep. Death Knights, tank, tank, and DPS. Uh, monks, tank, DPS, and heal. Uh, Demon Hunters, tank, and DPS. They're, they're never going no. to add a class that doesn't have two roles because... And it's because of how well controlled this game is by those roles. Even even in stuff like PvP, e even there, those roles really do define it. And maybe that's archaic, maybe that's old, but it is so built into the DNA of the game that even when an entirely new talent system came along, that talent system still enshrined it. Yeah. And, and, and to put it in perspective, and, and this is to come back to something that Matt and I, we talk about a lot, and it's something we love a lot. Let's talk about D&D &D in this regard, too. Because for generations and generations and generations, this holy trinity of healer, DPS, tank was what D&D was until they basically blew it up with 4th edition and started really pushing the boundaries of what you could do with group composition. Love or hate 4th edition, doesn't matter. That was the complete and utter blowing up of essentially those roles and trying to reshuffle it. And now we have 5th edition, which... I've had player groups that don't have a dedicated healer, and they're fine. I have groups that don't have a dedicated tank, and they're fine. Because you can build your characters, the game system is balanced in such a way now that you can do that when it wasn't before. And that's the same sort of thing we're walking into with an MMO. The big differences being, with an MMO, it's programmed. 
there's not somebody sitting behind the wheel that can make an adjustment on the fly if something's not exactly right. Mm-hmm. T- tabletop and games, they can. Plus, in a tabletop game, the most you have is you've got like six, seven other players at that table. And that's all that really matters to you. You don't have the entire population of a realm or, engaged or in organized millions PvP. of subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, for example, what's what's the highest DPS melee class in in D&D right now, you think? From a pure standpoint, from the base ones, I think Rogue actually has the highest uh, pure DPS Barbarian. Potential. Is it Barbarian? Barbarian, because the Rogue is considered a utility. Yeah, oh, fair enough. They have they have very high DPS, but they're also a utility. But also, what's the tankiest class in D&D right now? I would argue Barbarian on that front, too. Barbarian, yep, especially certain builds like the Zealot or, or Bear. Oh. And yet, that doesn't overshadow other classes. Mm-hmm. Because other classes can have abilities like a Fighter's Action Surge or, or a Paladin Smiting that can let them compete in those arenas and yet be have higher utility for other things. The Barbarian's effectively a one-trick pony in comparison. And it's just like nobody's like I've never been in a situation where anyone playing a rogue has said, yeah, now I'm going to quit reroll Barbarian because I like I want more damage. Maybe the Barbarian does more damage on a few hits, but who cares? There's so many other reasons to play a rogue. Stealth, high ta- high skills, stuff that the MMO just isn't going to have. It, it's balanced entirely mechanically. Yep. And, and D&D then, is not balanced that way. And that, that's and I think that's the root of the problem. Um, it, it's it, You have to keep in mind at the end of the day that you're dealing with mechanical systems that have been in place for ages. And so anything that changes how a fundamental class works or potentially does, that's potentially problematic and destabilizing. Now, again, and I'll say this again, I like the idea of it. I just don't know of a way that you can currently do it in an MMO that isn't that isn't going go to be completely to, breaking it. Yeah, I'm going to go back to something I was talking about in the pre-show for a second here and how how Kingdoms of Amalur worked. Because Kingdoms of Amalur is an example of a system that was built to be, clat, be role agnostic. Your character, since it was just you, it was a single-player RPG... And if somebody else played it differently, what did you care? You were never going to see their game. Yeah. And because of that, it had a completely agnostic approach to the roles. You could be tanky. You could be a stealth DPSer. You could cast like fireballs at people. You could do these things, and it didn't. It didn't matter if you had a like. I have both fireballs and a two-handed sword. Uh, th- those things didn't matter because it, the other person who didn't have them didn't care. There was no feeling of like unbalanced. There was no well, this this one will always win in these situations because they weren't fighting and they weren't like you didn't have to look at like, okay, we've got a we've got like five hundred groups raiding this this instance and there are no shamans in any of those groups. Why? Why is nobody playing the shaman? Oh, it turns out the shaman is like just doesn't have the tools to heal this. Okay, next here. Now suddenly we have a ton of shaman. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that the shaman have great tools for healing this and paladins can't can't stack up. That's the kind of thing that's effective that's that affects people playing the game that won't affect people in other kinds of games. Now, saying that, I loved Gladiator Stance. Oh yeah, it was great. I thought it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting and challenging. The DPS always sucked. <laughs> it was good. It was good for one half of one tier of rating. Like there were there were prop pallies using Gladiator Stance who did okay DPS and high mall. 
And then once gear caught up, they suddenly weren't good anymore. But that's another great example of balance, right? Because it was so hard to balance. That's why it's not there anymore. Exactly. It was. Then that's the thing where if we start adding in stuff that does like Gladiator Stance does and completely changes the way a spec works, like, yes, we, we if, if your Death Knight, you know, takes these various legendaries, it will change their unholy spec to one that uses daggers and can can do tons of magic damage at range. That's cool, but is it going to be balanced against all the people we already have who use daggers and, and do spells at range? No, probably not. It'll probably be inferior to them. But that's the price you pay for getting to do it on a character that's not supposed to be able to do it. Then why am I doing it? And that's always the problem with an MMO that you don't have other games. So I don't know. Um, in the, at the end of the day, my Diablo characters are usually they're barbarians because I like playing barbarians. And the fact that crusaders are better at greater rifts doesn't really affect me. Uh, although I do play a crusader from time to time. But but you know see what I'm saying it's it's not the same as in WoW where it's like you're trying to get a dungeon group, and I'm gonna look I'm looking back to like the days of of the Burning Crusade here, when a warrior tank was trying to get a dungeon group and they couldn't because everybody wanted to not use any CC, they wanted the paladin and druid, AOE threat generation that warriors did not have, and then we got into raids and suddenly nobody wanted paladins and druids because warriors had the tools to push all of the boss damage away that the other classes didn't have in, in both of those cases, it needed rebalancing. And that's something that once you start adding in items that completely change the spec, you're going to need even more balancing. Yep. And that's not to say that we, again, that we don't like the idea of it or anything like that. And we don't want to, to, to crash the idea completely. And if you have ideas that you have out there, and this is for all of you listeners, of stuff that you'd like to see in this vein that you think wouldn't be completely breaking the game, let us know. I'd love to hear some of your ideas out there. You know, for that matter, I'd love to see them and give this another shot. I'd love to yeah. see Gladiators like come back. I'd love to see a, them bring in just something like a, a set of a gear or an ability, like a talent, that would let Shaman tank again. I would lose my mind with happiness. I used to tank on a shaman. So did I. Tanked I tanked Karazhan on a shaman. So did I. My, yeah, and my, my, my co-tank was a boomkin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my co-tank was a warlock. Uh, but, yeah, you back in, in back in BC, you could tank effectively on a shaman uh, because you could get the, – the PvP gear at the time had resilience. Yep. I don't know if you guys remember resilience. Oh, it's been a while. Uh, but resilience, essentially, it, it functioned like defense to a degree because it, it – It lowered income damage. Yeah, it, not just overall income damage. It, it it pushed crits away. Yes, and crits were the big problem. You could reach uncritable on a character with full resilience gear. So on my shaman, who did mostly PvP, I brought him in and tanked uh, Karazhan on him. And up till we got to like, oh, I don't remember the like the last boss's name. In the one that dropped, yeah, the one who dropped all those uh, fire dudes on the raid. Oh, uh, Prince Malkazar. All dimensions, yeah, Prince Malkazar. He was the only one I couldn't tank, uh, just because it was just so much damage, and we didn't have a healer who could handle it. But other than that, yeah, I tanked the whole thing, and it, 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 it worked fine. I'd love to see stuff like that. I just feel like you gotta temper your expectations with the fact that maybe they could do it, but they'd have to not do other things, and they're never gonna be. No, no one's ever going to find the magic thing that everyone can have what they want and everybody gets the development they want. That's just never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, again, we'll see, but let us know your ideas. Uh, moving on, we have, hello all, I've asked y'all some hard questions lately, so I decided to come with easy ones. One, I recall leveling in Pandaria after Mop had a veil that was wrecked by Garrosh. You mentioned on the last show that you believe leveling in Mop in 9.0 uh, will have the old veil. Did you mean the one with the scar or the original veil or the restored veil? Um, these are from Shad. I think we can do them one at a time. Uh, yeah, I, I meant the one before Garrosh blew it up. So same. the original veil. Yeah, that's what I meant too. Like as you go through the expansion, you're going to experience it like we did when we first went through the expansion. So the veil will be in one piece until it isn't. Uh, so I don't. And then after we move past it, then we'll get to the restored portion. But I think it will actually follow the phases that it did originally. That's what I meant by that. Uh, second part of the question, theoretical, if Blizzard could go back in time and you choose how far back and make a change to WoW, what would it be and why? I personally wonder if they wish they had started the level by expansion sooner. Well, you have first crack at this one. Uh, there wouldn't be any warriors. Okay. Uh, I love warriors, you know I do, but I don't think the warrior class has enough of an identity. And Blizzard has never really known how to make it have an identity other than guys who hit things. Um, the the warrior class hall in particular, when we got it, I kept saying to myself, compare this to the Death Knight one or the Paladin one or the Shaman one or the Mage one or the Hunter one. Those all have an identity. This is I'm a Pokemon for a big yelly guy with a, with a beard on fire. He, he, you know, who is this dude to me? I've never seen him before. I never heard, you know, I vaguely know he's one of the watchers from Aldo, from Alduar. That's it. And, and there's no cool lore figures here at all. That's when I said, you know what they needed was an Alliance specific class and a Horde specific class that do the same thing. Instead of having Paladins and Shaman be, be faction restricted, I would have them both be from the start in both both factions, and I'd have there be like the the berserker over on the horde, and the knight over on the warrior, and functionally they'd be the same, but they'd be different in flavor. Yeah, and I think Where the horde is the 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 horde blade master is the arms for for horde side, the horde berserker. It's just literally just a crazy guy with two axes screaming. That's most orcs, so you you'd have that. And you'd have like the the torn tradition would be where they got their tanks from. And for the 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 alliance ones, you'd have like a night elf kind of stealth assassin is their fury warrior. You'd have the the knight as their arms warrior, and you'd have the mountain king as their prop warrior. And they they would be tied into their like their origins and their roles in the in the in the franchise. And they they all have the same basic abilities but they'd be different in flavor and you wouldn't consider them the same. Like a horde grunt and a Alliance footman aren't the same. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. I think, I think part of the original identity for warriors kind of got lost in the shuffle because back during classic, I think they were always intended to be like the weapon masters and it never really happened. If that, yeah, no, it didn't. especially once burning crusade hit and we all started getting access to more weapons. I remember back in the day on a shaman, I could use a mace and a staff and fist weapons and that was it like and then they opened it up yep. and they changed it mm -hmm. later 
and that took away some of that specialization from warriors in general, right? The Death Knight came along, and it really was like a nail to warriors having yeah. a unique identity. I remember not seeing a warrior for a warrior that entire expansion. <laughs> yeah, I was the only one I knew. I, I stuck with him, but nobody else did. I, I remember being the standard bearer for the class at the time where absolutely everybody wanted to go Death Knight. Yep. Because death, Blizzard's idea was warriors were always like, let us tank with two-handed weapons. Blizzard's like, wow, tanking with two-handed weapons sounds great. Here's a class that does it. And we were like, that was what we wanted. That was our thing. You just gave our thing to them. Yeah. And look at warlocks with like, you know, let us tank in demon form. Tanking in demon form, that sounds like a great idea. Here's demon hunters. And warlocks are like, huh? what? Okay, we're going to have to take that thing where you turn to a demon. We're going to take it away from you because we're giving it to them. Huh? What? Now, no, our I, thing. I will say for me, going back in time, I want to take it all the way back to before the game ever released when they were still on the drawing boards. And this is something I talked about many, many, many years ago, and I still hold in my heart of hearts. We don't have true hybrids. There has only been one game that I know of that has ever done hybrids truly well, and I really wish it would have been World of Warcraft. Uh, back during the days of Lord of the Rings Online, the Rune Priest was the it remains the only class I know that is a pure hybrid between DPS and healing. Your choices affect how well you do each of them without changing spec. It's just how the kit is built. And it was phenomenal. And I would love to have seen a discussion back before the game ever released when they started to talk about hybrids. Because even back then they talked about hybrid classes like... Oh, you can do this and this. And that's the way the talent trees were set up is that you could dip so far into each. I would have liked to have seen them take those ideas and expand them to make hybrids really a thing. Because I think it is a very cool style of play that nobody does. And it's almost impossible to find if you're not in like an ARPG or something like that. But I think can work and can be balanced in context of a in MMO, in a raid group, in a, in a party system, all of that stuff. That's what I would have loved to see. Give me something where, you know, my healing power is proportional to, you know, the amount of healing I've done, you know, up to this point or my damage versus like reverse of that or whatever. That's what I would have loved to have seen. A pure, true hybrid class concept from the very beginning. So, uh, anything else to add on that one? I think we're pretty much done. All right. Uh, we're coming up close to time. Do we want to do another question or do we want to call it? Yeah, in? absolutely. Why not? All right. Greetings, watchers. I've enjoyed the new Lunar Festival quest that grant permanent transmog capabilities for the Flower Crowns. It's the first time in a decade I've participated in the holidays since achieving what a long, strange trip it's been. I know some of them, including Lunar Festival, have had new stuff added over the years, but I liked the way these presented with having to bounce all over the world to acquire the crowns and then convert them to everlasting. Would you like to see more of it in the future? We'll know soon if they add something similar for Love is in the Air, but it got me thinking. If you could pick one or two more holiday-only cosmetic items for them to make permanently available in the wardrobe, what would you pick, assuming they don't just do something for all of them this year in the calendar order, I guess? Thanks, Marilene from Stormrange. I'm going to be embarrassed here, but I'll just admit this. As much as I'm a big Transmog fan, I've never paid attention to the holiday only items because they they don't interest me because they're holiday only items so I just put them out of my head like I don't look at them I don't pay any attention to them 
That's fair. So I can't really. There's nothing I can think of that's a holiday only item that I would want to transmog to. Like the flower oh. crown doesn't even interest me. So yeah, I've got I one. Mean, go for it. You do sunglasses. Any of the sunglasses that are in game, please, Blizzard. For the love of everything, let me transmog into them all year round. They're absolutely amazing, and they look goofy as heck on my torn, and I love them. I love them so much. Whether it's the gold ones or the ones from Love is in the Air, just let me, give me a quest that lets me transmog into them all year round. They're so awesome. They're like the only holiday-specific cosmetic item in this game, whether it's the anniversary, Love is in the Air, or any of that stuff, that I love. And I would fight for that. Come on, let us let us do that. And I know I'm not the only one because I know that I've had people comment the exact same thing to me. And just at this point, just let us do it, man. Come on, come on, please. Yeah, sunglasses. Yeah. In general, I, I'm I'm in favor of them loosening any and all transmog restrictions, but that's one that just never really occurred to me. I've never really thought about it because I just don't do holiday stuff that much. <laughs> uh, it's fair enough. But that takes us through all of our questions. Uh, thank you, everybody who sent stuff in. Again, please continue to send it to us. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your questions answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Anything uh, you want to add? I was going to say, uh, if you have an email for the show, again, please send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com with the subject line podcast of Blizzard Watch for us for this show. Um, thank you guys so much for sending in the ones you did because, you know, that's how we do shows. Don't really have any emails. We, we just stand around looking at each other for a while. And since we're not in the same room and don't have cameras, we kind of have to guess where the other person would be. And it's just weird and awkward. <laughs> Thanks for not making us have to do that. Um, you know, again, this has been the Blizzard Watch podcast, y'all. Uh, dang it, I went y'all at the end. <laughs> Why does this happen? I'm from New England. <laughs> My grandmother was actually from Texas, so it's probably that. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll be here next week. 